Welcome again to the Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. Again, I'm Brent Trimble. My guest today, we're excited to have, is the Executive Vice President of Strategy and a co-founder of Hero Digital. His name is Owen Frivold. Am I pronouncing that correct? Yeah. Frivold. Great. Owen, we're thrilled to have you on the show. There's a few topics we want to dive into around talent, as well as this notion of turning services into products and productization, something you've had some success with at your agency. So we're excited to to explore those topics. But first, we want to hear a little bit about you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your leadership role and mission at Hero Digital. Yeah. First of all, thank you, Brett, for having me. Really appreciate it. So as you allude to, I, I head up strategy at Hero Digital, a firm that I helped uh, co-found, gosh, gosh, it's almost eight years now. And you know, to your point around sort of purpose and mission and leadership function, if you will, at Hero, it's been you know, a long journey coming from, you know, from the start of landing the first client to getting to the size that we're at now. And I've worn many hats, uh, started off in a client services portfolio management capacity, led a division, if you will, or business unit within Hero, especially as we were growing and acquiring other firms. We had a, a number of different divisions at one time and have since integrated them. And about two years ago, right as COVID hit, moved from the client services side to the practice side to help lead and, and scale a strategy practice for Hero as we were refining our focus and sort of looking at you know, a lot of the challenges that our clients were facing and looking to codify, clarify, and effectively, to your point, productize a lot of the solutions that we were starting to see, or key needs, if you will, that we were starting to see requiring solutions for you know, a broad swath of our client base. That's awesome. And, you know, eight years, I mean, I'm sure for you sounds like quite some time. It's relatively a short trajectory for the size and scope that you've been able to achieve. But for, you know, for context, as we dive into things like talent and building products, give us a sense of size and and the array of things that you really deploy for your clients at Hero. I know, for instance, you do a lot on the the experience side of things, digital experience, digital transformation, you're a big Adobe partner, but you know, within that digital realm, there's quite a bit. And I know you guys are pretty deep. So yeah, just give us some dimensions. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think, you know, the, the heart of when we started, which was around 2014, you really were seeing this trend of CIO spend moving over to the CMO. And with that, a need to basically have a strong understanding of how these solutions were built, but also how to best deploy all the sort of CXM solutions or customer experience management solutions. So that's where we really started and then over time evolved into a firm that really could, and again, this is my shorthand, this isn't specific to Hero's sort of official positioning, but for a long time, we essentially focused on the digital experience layer going from the glass all the way down to the CRM and essentially across all sets of services, right? So design, UX, strategy, content, technology, data, right? And so essentially creating all those solutions that allow for any brand effectively to transform into a business that is truly digital, not just doing digital things. And that I think has been sort of a primary driver for us when it comes to how we've been able to 
stand out in a marketplace that, as we all know, is very crowded. And one of the key things that we did in, in bringing on our CMO, Kenneth Parks, a few years back was really helping us find our sort of core purpose and North Star for ourselves, right? Our value system. And we really anchored it around this notion of truth and beauty, this idea of, you know, how do you unearth some of the key human truths tied to what can create value for your end consumer and then tying that to beauty being the response. So said more sort of uh, less abstractly, if you will, the idea of thinking about putting people first. So what's good for people is good for business. And essentially, you're, you're asking around products and solutions. That's actually been a primary driver for how we think about crafting some of the solutions that we develop. So we've launched a solution around helping brands kind of understand where they're going, set that North Star vision, and then build the case for it and the case for change being sort of a massive thing that, especially when COVID hit, right as I was joining the strategy practice, that became a really key thing is how do you substantiate you know, the decisions that you're going to make? And with a limited set of dollars, there are an unlimited set of possibilities of, of different technologies and, and things that you can try and apply to reach those end consumers. But what ended up happening is you know, what people uh, value and their values became sort of such a key component to their decision-making when COVID arose and people were sitting at home and they were reflecting and sort of looking at different ways that we, in many ways, were fortunate that right as we were crafting these next, this next wave of solutions, we were sort of observing these things and through the custom research that we were doing, you know, kind of found these key points that we felt could help make sense of a lot of the uncertainty going on around what consumers might want. And that ultimately was the you know, sort of those were the seeds, if you will, that helped us then think about what kinds of productized services and solutions that we'd be able to provide that we've you know since stood up over the course of the last two years. So in the in the context of the pandemic, and we're now you know the world's kind of adopted and kind of resigned themselves to their probably never be a you know completely covid free world but businesses it it, it it's interesting right we have a wide array of digital experience agency creative strategy type clients and and hear from a lot of the service industry the pace of business for firms in your space and I'd love to hear firsthand was simply just torrid because there's so much pent up demand still to digitize experiences, you know, retail and, and, you know, I'm preaching the choir, well, choir of one here today uh, as you're listening, but so much of that was concentrated. I mean, I saw businesses, I mean, you know, here in the outskirts of New York city and everyone's in lockdown. There was a, I'll give you an example of a digitized business model, a wholesale distributor of really fine food to great top echelon restaurants in the city sitting on warehouses of food where the restaurants are shut down, quickly spun up an e-commerce model where people could band together in their streets in bulk and you know put in these orders and started shipping residentially. I mean, that was digital transformation. I'm sure they they never had that, maybe never had that in their roadmap, but, but technology has matured. They were able to. Now, the experience wasn't as elegant maybe as going on a a really refined D to C kind of website and, you know, everyone, you know, remembering profiles and so forth. But an example of that, walk us through maybe an example or two of where you saw that maybe a longstanding client who had some ideas that were maybe nascent, but they accelerated or even just a new client coming to you in that time saying, we've got to refactor digital experiences at the forefront 
please help us. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to cover a, a couple points first, and then kind of speak to, a, to an example. I think the the positive externality of all this, right, is that throughout it all, the status quo had to change. It was adapt or die. I hate to say it that way, but it was right. And so you saw so many things get called into question that you saw brands of all sizes, businesses of all sizes, willing to take more risks. And in so doing, right, again, it wasn't in a time of prosperity, though, either. So you really had to help them both place the right bets because they needed to take on that risk, but also help them think through how to substantiate that and think it through. So I think you saw a lot of, you know, like, just like the example you shared, right, a a means by which that that business was able to pivot on a dime and stand up solution and pressure test solutions that previously might have been, you know, hey, they might want to, you know, they want to hurt the brand. They might be averse, might be distracting. Now, like, you know, guess what? Now you have two forms of revenue streams down, like, because now they can do a direct to consumer play. And I'm sure they've evolved that experience you just called out. And at the same time, you know, you're looking at, you know, that same business that had waned that forced them to look at a different way to bring in revenue back on the rise, right? So all of a sudden you've diversified your portfolio of revenue new streams. It's kind of interesting. So what we ended up seeing is, you know, early days, clients and banking clients were a big one, right? Because you also had these fintech disruptors coming in, but you saw basically, we saw a ton of traction. We did some custom research because, you know, quick aside, no forecasting model had in it, you know, a placeholder for what happens when a pandemic hits and how do you project, project demand, right? And so, it also created a level playing field for a lot of firms that didn't necessarily have their own proprietary data systems to go, hey, if you ask the right questions and can gather the right data, you can actually stand out among a crowd of very, you know, of much bigger players if you're focused on trying to make sense of the world in ways that then help unlock that decision-making process that some of these brands are going through. So going back to an example... We have a number of regional banks that we work with where, again, a lot of the way in which their compensation models worked, everything else, were tied to in-branch traffic and those branches were closed. And so how do you help these businesses adapt to you know, not wanting to furlough staff as they rightfully shouldn't, right? but get their employees who are eager to actually learn too, because that's another point of uh, of focus, right? You have employees who are needing to adapt their ways of working in order to maintain their livelihoods. And so all of a sudden you saw this interesting play where the business model and the staff were more open than ever for change. And so we saw a lot of great new ideas and ways of working and innovative thinking, even at the service design level, if you will, oriented around areas that were predominantly focused as sort of the front door being a physical presence, right? So retail banks were one, hospital networks were another, right, for different reasons. But we saw, you know, those two in particular, right? And we sort of tagged those, you know, livelihoods and and lives or lives and livelihoods, right? Those sort of two categories of brands or businesses. I, I hate to think of a hospital network as a business, but in some respects, right, you, you have to. But those two sort of categories were were the most ripe for change and needing the kinds of solutioning that you're alluding to, right? And so we saw that uh, a ton. We also saw from it bonding, if you will, or in a sense, you know, the adapter that also means you, you go further together. So you saw consideration around allying, partnering, buying versus building custom, because the rate that you had to essentially adapt was so high that you couldn't really do it alone. 
And we also saw, which I think also yielded some interesting ways in which, you know, we've seen clients come up with new offerings that really speak to the value that their customers are looking for. I mean, the perfect example is credit cards, right? You have banks that have credit cards tied to rewards to travel for the last, you know, for first 18 months of COVID, or if you will, or first year at least, right? I mean, you're not, that's irrelevant. So even thinking through how do you pivot and how do you also just build that resiliency in once and try and maintain that became a really key part of you know where we start to see a lot of patterns across a bunch of different categories of of clients and that's where sort of we started to go okay we need to think about how do we productize systematize for lack of a better way of describing it our offerings right because we're seeing the same request a regional hospital network and a regional bank are both speaking to sort of core needs on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? They're both needing to adapt. They're having different constraints, but ultimately need to service people at a level that is so critical. How do we help them adapt, build, you know, and modify and also justify, which ended up being, while there's an appetite for change, the need to justify it was so much, was so much greater too. So that's, those are all the factors that we use to kind of stand up some of those solutions. Yeah. And, and you brought, you, know, you used two terms around lives and livelihood. And in our listeners of our, of our podcast, and we, we thank them for listening, as well as uh, the array of, of clients that we serve, they're really talent-based organizations, right? They're talented people, resources, whether they're you know, talented on the, the engineering side or strategic, creative, experience, content, and everything in between. And traditionally in a model, an agency-like model, management consulting model, um, live and livelihood are sometimes strained, right? I mean, you're, it's a long hour business, has been for a long time. And there's this notion, and, and one of the things we, we feel the pandemic really kind of turned on its head with this notion that this agency creative consulting model couldn't exist with decentralization. It still had to be people coming together in conference rooms, working through the weekends to craft wonderful pitches and strategic ideas. And you know, that's kind of been proven false, right? There's been incredible work produced in the past couple of years with folks working in uh, remote locations. But for you, you know, talk us through maybe how you arrive there around this notion of if we simplify and and productize some commonly referenced offerings, is that helping you arrive at solutions faster and therefore having a great downstream effect on your talent? They're able to work in different constructs more efficiently. Talk us through some of the benefits of taking a, a service and, and, and you, you know, for the, for those who listen, I encourage them to check out here digital. I mean, the array of things you offer is, is very vast, you know, explain to us how that winnowing down, I guess, into some, some products and compartments has benefited your talent. Yeah, absolutely. Happy, happy to. So a few key points, I'd say, I mean, the first was obviously just built muscle memory. And, and a lot of, you know, you spoke a little bit to sort of management consulting. A lot of it is bespoke, like you have your frameworks, everything else, but a lot of it is you sort of tailor it specific to a client. And that doesn't go away, especially in strategy, right? Like you, you, you have to maintain that. But I think, you know, one, it's just, a, it's a good anchoring point. And so the way it helped, well, a couple of things I think I, I should start with is one, we started an inside, by doing it inside out. So we didn't promote what the solution was and then build as we go. We built the foundation of it, looking at sort of the various different 
needs that we had been servicing for some time, we sort of bubbled up the common themes that then meant se- made sense for us to codify. And then we did, we deliberately built them and invested in sort of building the right tool sets. So I, the benefit was you didn't have a build as you go approach for our talent either. And it wasn't that it was so abstracted that you couldn't apply it. We had it applied to clients in the moment, but we were, we, we weren't essentially piloting the solution and defining it. We had defined it. We had all, you know, we invested deliberately in establishing that because we felt it was really critical to get right. And essentially the dividends it would pay is in, you know, the benefits that we would yield with our employees and with our clients, which was, you know, a repeatable way of working with key milestones to get there in a way that onboarding is easier, right? Because essentially to your point with demand going up, it's not just about existing talent starting to come together, but it's also just reducing the cognitive load of having to solve everything from scratch every time, but also knowing, you know, essentially, okay, there's a point of view that this firm is taking on how they want to solve a problem in the space. And so it allowed us also to differentiate that way. So even as an employer brand, when you're talking about the types of work that you're doing and infusing your values into the way you craft it, it's a lot harder to do when you're building as you go at the whim of a client, right? Versus doing it as a deliberate sort of R&D investment, for lack of a better way of, of saying it. And so I think the other benefit was the team felt like they were part of it. They weren't just reactive. They were proactive in the way in which they were building this, which I gave them a sense of ownership and pride. I'd like to think in the solution being led by their value system and what we wanted, how we wanted to stand out, not just in reaction to demand coming through exclusively. So hopefully that helps answer you know your question in some part. It does, and you know it's interesting because you you talk about you know building everything from scratch, and certainly we've all many of us have participated in whether it's coming up with a prospective strategic approach in a pitch or helping a client solve an issue. And we do, we come to the whiteboard with more or less a blank slate where there's, had there been any pushback or feeling of confinement by, you know, strategists or did they recognize that building within a framework and using that to kind of organize thinking leads to kind of efficiency and productivity and usually of greater insights? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great question. So I think the way we looked at it was, what are the foundational elements of our toolbox, not what is the most prescriptive way of working? Because you know, every brand that we engage with, if we're helping them sort of think through, okay, what's the next five, what are the next five years going to look like? You, you go through a sort of traditional set of coverage areas, right? You, culture, category, competition, your own company, right? Your customer base, your consumer, you know, the consumer. So, you know, you infuse all those those elements and you have to think through, okay, what are the right tactics? What are the right approaches to fit fit the need of, of a specific client? But then from there, how you choose to infuse those learnings are really going to be dependent on a number of different things. Everything from, you know, what kind of industry you're in, like we alluded to with financial services, right? We built out a, a means by which you can essentially create a value model tied to the various different goals that a business might have. So for example, if you want to focus more on customer retention and cross-selling, then there might be you know, a way in which you're going to inform your roadmap and the kind of feature set that you want to do. But if you choose to toggle differently and want to go more towards you know, expansion of net new customer base, there might be different tactics you want to flow in. So what we did when we established these tools, we didn't make them so prescriptive. We made them more guideposts along a journey to get to an end state 
where the inputs could be malleable enough tied to where a company was at in their journey on digital transformation, which I firmly believe you're never done, right? I think we'd all agree that there's always some new technology that can be applied. So essentially what we did is we sort of deliberately respected the fact that you can't get overly process-oriented, overly prescriptive in the approach to a way where it's like, oh, we're doing it wrong. It's more, hey, these are the key pillars that get you to that end state. These are the must-haves. These are the ways of working within certain activities along that journey, as opposed to sort of making it something that was so dogmatic that you know, essentially a brand would either accept or reject it. We made it more something that was malleable. I don't know if that nuance makes sense, but I think that was a key thing for us to provide. You know, to start us a little bit on this track of talent and the benefits of of these components and products you've built, and you brought up this notion of being a an employer brand, have you found a benefit to this in the you know the interview process or maybe attracting talent? There's great analogies for management consulting. I mean, you know, McKinsey has their famous frameworks and you know, you can go to the seven S's or the the nine box matrix and you know, these building blocks of Theses, you know, Shia Day famously had kind of a planning framework and kind of the the golden era of advertising comms. Has this helped you when you're even someone in a content practice, all the way over to maybe an engineering and say, you know, we've developed these tools and they're going to help you execute better? I mean, the short answer is yes, right? It has. I, I would say, I think the other appeal is that. You know, like we said, we've been at it for eight years. And like you said, it's a relatively short trajectory, all things considered. You know, one of the, the, the only constant hero has been change and evolution, right? And so what it's been great for discerning as well is, and we all know this, right? I love Ray Dalio's, you don't want Einstein on your basketball team, right? It doesn't mean that he's not valuable. It's also allowed us to discern who are the right people to join our team, right? So it's also a little bit of, we're in the midst of establishing those types of tools. And we want people who are eager to be a part of that definition and evolution, right? It's very different than going to a place where essentially there's a way of working that is what their brand has been versus an organization where, you know, the malleability, uh, the adaptability, the nimbleness, right, is part of what's what makes your value prop so appealing to brands. And so I think it's more it's spoken as much to us being able to discern who's a right fit, knowing where we are and sort of our journey to establish that. And when you do get people who sort of get it and click, you know, you get that passion, you get that sense of commitment too, right? Because they want to be part of a solution that they've been able to put their fingerprints on and not just come into someplace that's fully baked and okay, we use this tool set and we do it this way, right? It's there's this like I said, there's a positive externality to, you know, the circumstances under which we found ourselves working remotely and everything else, which is best idea wins oftentimes, right? Like the best solution to problems that haven't been proven. And there is no expert in COVID, right? No matter who you go to, McKinsey to down to you know a boutique firm, there are no experts in this, right? There's no no one was around and during the Spanish flu and can go, oh well, when we, you know, when that hit, we knew what to do. <laughs> so what was nice is it sort of created an idea meritocracy and a solution meritocracy. And I think that's what we were certainly um, able to benefit from was you found yourself in an environment where if you could detect the right patterns that you were seeing as common needs systematize them so that they were reasonable, added the value that a brand needed, 
you could capture a much greater portion of spend share within an existing account because a lot of these things became jump balls in the agency ecosystems within clients. And it's not like they're going to go to procurement wanting to onboard yet another vendor, right? Or partner or agency or consultancy, you know, for a good portion of 2020 and into, you know, 2021 unlocked a bit more. And we saw a lot of our efforts come to fruition then. But I think that was also a good benefit was if you could demonstrate you understood and could identify those patterns and your team could, and they could really relate. And, you know, sort of the rot. empathy became such a valuable component in that sense that it really allowed us to, to flourish in a time that obviously from a health standpoint was a huge concern for everyone, but from a business standpoint, allowed us to really adapt and, and frankly, even reposition ourselves in the eyes of not only our existing clients, but the market as well. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I, I won't ask you to share proprietary growth rates or anything like that, but it sounds like there's just been fantastic growth. And some of that is obviously in the position you're at. I mean, we've, you know, we have partner firms who found themselves, unfortunately, in the first year of COVID, they were focused Mm -hmm. on the travel and tourism industry and they got clobbered. And now, of course, they're beneficiaries of pent up demand. But one thing around talent and being an employer brand and in a space that's historically had higher than average churn I'd heard anecdotally from a few agency leaders like yourself that, you know, of course, we all have heard ad nauseum about the great resignation and, mm-hmm. and a lot mm-hmm. of talent migration, folks reevaluating the meaning of work and better integration of work and life and, and those types of things. I'd also read an interesting quote. I think it was from um, the uh, chief operating officer at S4, you know, Sir Martin's new, no, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. couple of year venture now saying that they're seeing more resignation on the client side and therefore a bit more reliance on them as partners and your your procurement and you know looking to onboard another partner and then it's instead just leveraging more and more of the expertise someone mm-hmm. like you have brought have you seen that manifest a bit both in work and then you know speak to us a little bit about resignation yeah, and, churn totally. and, and talent and i think you know throughout the if, if you look at the duration of covid right and sort of to your point like we're, we're reaching a different chapter of it if you will right at the start it was you know is it brand demand we don't know we how do you make sense of it all we hope it's a stabilized yeah a chapter in a short pamphlet and not a not war and peace, right? Like Exactly, <laughs> right. So that started, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then from there, you know, it became, okay, how do we redeploy? How do we think through that? I mean, we did during, say, 2020. So if you sort of break it down to different chapters, through most of 2020, it was, we didn't see a ton of churn. We saw a lot of almost self-preservation, so need to really act. So there was a bias towards action because something needed to get done on the client side, need for guidance, need for the right partnership, strategic partners who could help you think through. Enter 2021, sort of a bit of a stutter step, quite frankly, right? In the sense that like we thought things were opening up and Delta, Omicron obviously hit and that sort of threw some uncertainty back into the mix. We did start to see a little bit of that churn, right? And so in the best of ways where you once had one client and now you have two because they take you, you know, the, whoever's leaving on the client side also, you know, wants to refer you in because they appreciate what you've done and, and the value you provide, right? So it's not a breakup, you know, it's, it's quite the contrary. Essentially, you're, it's additive in value. Now, when it comes to the actual reliance, I mean, we've seen at least at the start of 2021, 20, or end of 2021, start of 2022, 
we're seeing market dynamics affect a few things as well, right? Obviously, interest rates and not knowing exactly what's going to happen there. Inflation, you know, the great reshuffling means that both on one hand, you're relying on partners. On the other hand, you also need a stakeholder that you can hold accountable to decisions and budget spend and things like that. And when that seat is vacant for too long, you know, you can also err err on the side of concern, right? Because while you might be, they might be leaning on you as a partner, you know, the accountability dynamic is different, right? Like you are literally influencing ways in which they're running their business with no clear party accountable on their side or and outsourcing that, you know, can only go for so long. So we're seeing, to answer your question outright, we're seeing a number of different scenarios, a lot of which is really tied to stabilizing the core of who they have, like to who is on their team, who's not, and then basically reinvestment in the in in their own employee base. So what's kind of interesting if you think about it is for so long career advancement has been you got to go somewhere else to make more to especially in the agency space, right? You sort of ping pong back and that's the way you do it. But because of the demand, because of the gaps on the client side, brands in general are having to think about how do you actually, you know, it's a it's a candidate's market. So how do you actually garner and loyalty you know, even in the post-Trump era, is kind of a weird term to talk about. I don't mean to politicize. It. I just think that term can sometimes mean different things, right? But the idea of how do you garner a commitment or a buy-in and a fulfillment or fulfilling environment for your employee? Because the cost to replace, the risk to delivery is so much greater now on both sides of the house that I kind of like the fact that you have to sort of reinvest in the people that have helped you get to this point. And it's meant to be rewarding those that are you know, have been there with you along the way, not just the net new fresh people that are joining, right? So I know it it sort of addresses both sides of the house. But I think one of the things we've seen throughout, you know, this last chapter, if you will, of COVID is, yeah, there's some clients that are leaning on us more because they have departure, but also seeing them make sure that they're taking care of the people who have helped them through this more. And so, you know, it's that I think has actually been an an interesting. byproduct of it all is like, who are they recommitting to, in a sense, right? And renewing their commitment to in ways that then only strengthen our bonds with that brand because our partnership with that individual is tied to the value that they're providing to their business. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it does. And, you know, continuing to grow and cultivate folks from within, you know, you can't recast a, a free agent superstar team every you know year over year and have to have to replace them every 18 months it, you can achieve that in in some sports sometimes but you still have to have that you know to your point the people that brought you there as the bulwark of talent um you know as we approach kind of the end of our discussion here I'd love to hear your thoughts you know flip that back on maybe yourselves and on the agency t- side of things I've seen and we've heard of some really interesting innovative waves that agencies are helping to retain and cultivate their own talent, kind of recognizing very similar patterns. I read, for instance, a really interesting article in the drum, I think around the holidays where you know some agencies were experimenting with four-day work weeks and finding that it actually was doing really well. There's compensation changes. There's, of course, different perks. And we've seen that pattern over the past decade or so of big tech pulling in particularly in your space, right? Because you're very, very focused in digital big tech, pulling folks away and and really hard sometimes to compete with the types of perks. But yeah, share maybe some 
some lessons learned on your side as well as maybe some observations from the field you've seen? Yeah, would love to. I mean, I think so a couple of sort of broader statements I'd say is that I think, well, we're not all shelter in place. We're certainly in a sort of a muted existence relative 2019, right? And so and I keep going back to this, but it's really true. What people value, you know, comes to the forefront. And when you're commute is five seconds between your office and the kitchen, like it is for me and the kids and everything else, right? You know, the kinds of perks, if you will, and the ways in which you're providing assistance or support to your, or, you know, to, to your team, it's materially different. There is no commute back with a 20 minute listen to a podcast or in silence, if it were, you know, whatever it may be, there is no decompression time, right? So I think, you know, that's, I think the most important, and, and for that reason, right, and there's, you know, there's a lot of talking before around like, you know, it's not about the ping pong table or whatever. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's the ping pong table index out here in the Bay Area of like frothiness tied to how many like to purchase of ping pong tables in this market. The key point is that, we realize that it's a, you need basically a portfolio of compensation elements. It's not just sort of, it's certainly not just compensatory. And it also has to be something that you infuse in your culture. It cannot just be something that, you know, is on a sheet of paper and you can't bring to life. So I think one of the points you brought up earlier that I think is, it's not a perk, let's, let me be clear, but I think is really critical is being able to protect flow time. Like even in just your ability to do work and creating norms around, hey, you know what, there are times of the week. It's not about not working. It's about being in a place where it is uninterrupted, gives you time to do your best work, focus. It is a, a time that's respected across the organization as one that is meant to be separate from the chaos of the culture that has to come from working remotely. So even those kinds of tactics are, are, are there. I think that's been one that we've adopted of just you know, protecting, creating and establishing and protecting and preserving this ritual of having flow time during the week that you don't book over, right? And it, it's not a perk, I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge, but I think it's an element that I think helps people feel like they can do, they're better set up for success. And in so many ways that becomes part of what allows people to feel more fulfilled, right? Is being able to know that whatever they're working on, they're spending a ton of time on it. They have a better shot at creating the quality of a pro- of, of an outcome that they, they really want to achieve. So some of that is just tied to rituals as an organization that you have to adopt to be more accommodating. Others have been, you know, essentially just respecting flexible schedules, making sure you, to best of your ability, you don't book people across multiple times that like, all those things are not perks per se, but they are cultural norms and rituals that you have to stand by if you want to ultimately, you know, essentially create an environment where people feel like they're set up for success. No, and I was going to say to that point, probably immediately evident at, at a, in a new joiner's critical 30, 60, 90 days. Like, wow, this place is a bit different. I have some empty time in my calendar to to actually execute some work. And it's not a situation where my entire day is consumed with interactions and I do my real work in the evening, which is has been par for the course for a lot of folks in, in it, like a consulting framework and so forth. Yeah. No, it's really excellent. Yeah. 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 So so that's one. I and then the other, I think just mental health, right? That's been such a critical piece. So I think a lot of firms, rightfully so, have just put that as part of their benefits packages and all that, whether it's, you know, solutions like Headspace or things that are more tied to their actual health benefits and the rise of all sorts of fantastic solutions that help 
people get the help that they need in a remote environment as well. I think that's been one that, again, it, it's not, it doesn't stand out as particularly unique, but I think it's been a critical one. The other is there's a company called Philo out here and they do this great, I, I love this concept. They basically, you essentially get paid to go on vacation. Uh, it's, uh, that's not the headline, but essentially, you know, you take a week off and then at the end of it, you know, you submit input on how it went and, and you get reward, you know, you basically get a, a voucher for lack of a better way, you know, that, that's paid to you. So it's a form of compensation that you can only get through actually taking a break. And I know this, my, my uh, I have a family member who works there, but I, I honestly think just that concept of essentially rewarding taking breaks in an, in an environment where essentially it's so easy to burn out now because you have no transition, the the challenge to compartmentalize is greater than it's ever been. You know, th- those kinds of things, I mean, I think they speak well. And I think they're the types of ways to essentially put your money where your mouth is and say, hey, look, you know, we, we want you to feel like this is something that is rewarding to you. It is punitive. And the way we do that is, you know, make sure that when you when you do get benefited from it, you know, when you do take that time, you actually have an added benefit to it. And I think it is a lot harder to charge your battery when you're at zero. It takes a lot longer to charge back up when it's at zero. And I think the half-life on burnout has gotten, people are burning out faster than ever, I think, in this environment when they're not with the kinds of conditions that allow them to compartmentalize, to take breaks and not feel guilty, right? To understand and respect their own headspace enough to recognize when they need to talk to someone, ask for help. And it's not even in a mental health capacity, just in a social capacity. So I think those are the things that, you know, as we look to more solutions, we found to be the most fitting to go after. Obviously, there's comp and other variables that are evidently at play. But at the end of the day, you know, my firm belief is after a certain point, whether you make an extra five, 10%, if the quality of the time you're spending working isn't any better, or even worse, that additional comp is used as justification for the environment in which you have to work, people are going to quickly turn, you know, the, the turnover rates are only going to accelerate, right? And so I think that to me is a core area of focus for services firms and brands alike. Like, I don't think there's a distinction there in particular. I think it's just, you know, as we're norming around these things, it's really critical to make sure that those are the key components of it. And and not normalizing. And, and thankfully, I think getting away from this notion that continuous 80-hour weeks are a sign of strength and endurance and, and, and rigor and intelligence, right? I think that term you brought up, half-life burnout, I mean, you could put a some kind of metrics around that, some qualifiers. I mean, but that, I hadn't heard it conceptualized that way. And, it, and you're absolutely right because if you think think of just the mechanics of screen refresh rates to your you know your optical nerves and and just feeling that exhaustion at the end of the day of just staring at staring at screens. So it's really a point. Listen, this has been an incredibly energizing conversation and great. I think for our listeners who really need to hear from peers and leaders in the space as they tackle some of these issues. And you've given us both some really conceptual strategic frameworks to think about around the repeatable work and frameworks, as well as some great tactical anecdotes around talent, recognition, and retention. So I, on behalf of the listenership, really appreciate the time you've invested today because it is, it's a big investment of time. It's, and we appreciate that. For those listening, again, our, our guest has been Owen Freevold. He's the executive vice president and leads the strategy practice as well as a co-founder at Hero Digital. 
And for any inputs or questions around the podcast, always feel free to reach out to us at podcast at mavenlink.com. Any follow-up questions, ideas for guests, and remarkably, we, we do have people reach out to that from time to time. But again, Owen, thanks for the great conversation. I've really enjoyed having you today and look forward to connecting. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know by giving the show a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a comment. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do so anywhere you get your podcast on any podcast app. And to learn more about the transformative power of Mavenlink, go to mavenlink.com. Thank you for listening.